Natan Sharansky spent nine years serving as a refusenik in Soviet prisons in the 1970s and 80s, and after his release moved to Israel, forming a highly successful right-wing immigrant party, which enabled him to become a minister in multiple governments. After leaving the government, he became the head of the Jewish Agency, the branch of the Israeli government, which is responsible for relations between the State of Israel and Diaspora Jewry. He's the author of multiple books. His memoir, Fear No Evil, was published in 1988 and translated into nine languages. His book, The Case for Democracy, The Power of Freedom to Overcome Tyranny and Terror, was a New York Times bestseller. Sharansky was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal in 1986 and in 2006 became the only non-American citizen to be awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. In 2018, he was awarded the Israel Prize, regarded as Israel's most prestigious award. I had the great honor and privilege of sitting down with Natan Sharansky in his office at the Jewish Agency in Jerusalem, where we discussed his time in Soviet prisons, relations with the State of Israel and Diaspora Jewry, specifically the Kotel Agreement and the Reform and Conservative Movements, Aliyah, Peace with the Palestinians, and How to Live a Meaningful Life. I'm Barack Holman, the author of Figure It Out When You Get There, a memoir of stories about living life first and watching how everything falls into place, and a shtickle shalom, a student, his mentor, and their unconventional conversations. And this is Jewish People and Ideas a podcast of conversations with Jewish thought leaders about contemporary Jewish topics. Support for this episode of Jewish People and Ideas comes from the Mayanot Institute of Jewish Studies, located in the heart of Jerusalem, providing a highly academic Judaic studies curriculum taught by a dynamic staff and a welcoming atmosphere. To learn more, go to mayanot.edu. Shalom Aleichem Natan. Shalom, shalom. I grew up in the Reform Movement. And your name was always spoken of in our Reform Temple. Yeah. You, see, you can see I'm no longer a Reformed Jew. Yeah, but I went off the derech. <laughs> so when you moved from Reform to Orthodox uh, world, the picture was still there, or did it disappear? No, the picture was still there. <laughs> okay. And so for me to meet you is really a great honor. And I thank you for giving me this time. You spent nine years in the Gulag, nine years in the Knesset, and nine years in the Jewish Agency. Which of them was worse or best? Well, uh, the most, uh, the most enjoyable was of course prison because of simple reason. Because there was, uh, physically, it was very tough place. Uh, But in terms of fulfilling fully your obligations. As a Jew and human being, you feel that you say no to KGB every day, and with this you fulfilled all Tariag Mitzvot. Uh, in daily life, you can never feel so so fully completing your obligations in this world. You are in constant doubt. Uh, you are in constant compromises. Sometimes understanding what a failure you are in some major obligations or challenges. And here, the God, the faith, the uh, people uh, gave me a unique opportunity to be in the center of the world struggle, feeling very close, close almost intimately, that you continue this uh, journey which started in Itziat uh, Mitzrayim. Uh, and continues until this day for our right to be free and proud Jewish people. And uh, all what you have to do is to keep saying no to KGB. 
being in prison. So from this point, it was a very comfortable life. Uh, in the government, of course, it is very complicated. It's most complicated it's because there you have to make, uh, as a member of coalition, as a member of class, as the leader of the party, you're supposed to deal to make a lot of decisions which will help to those who sent you to the Knesset and which will not undermine your feeling of connection with all the Jewish people. And because it is coalition government, so there must be many compromises. And I never felt very comfortable. So, so sometimes I felt that I cannot uh, go anymore with this government and I resigned. So when uh, asked by Prime Minister if I would be we then, if I want to, again to start uh, to join him in, uh, in the government uh, 10 years ago, I said, you know, I was four, four in the four different governments and I resigned twice. For comparison, I was in four different prisons and I never resigned. So something is wrong with my being. And then he said, so you don't want to be in a, in a public office anymore with irritation. So I said, no, if you'll support my, me as a candidate to be the chairman of Jewish agency, I'm uh, very interested. He almost fell from the chair because uh, usually the, ch the chairman of Jewish agency wants to become a member of Knesset, the minister, ambassador in Washington. And here he really proposed me all these options. And I said, no. And then, and I want to get something minor as it was believed. And uh, he said, well, you think there is another million Jews to bring and to take credit? I said, no, I don't know whether there is another million Jews. I'm not sure, but of course, I'll be happy to be involved in bringing any number of Jews. But the most important thing that you're right concentrating on the threat of Iran, but we have another threat. We have threat whether we survive as one people. And I think Jewish agency, I know very well Jewish agency. I was fighting against Jewish agency. I was cooperating from the government of the agency. I know how unique this position of this organization between Israel and Jewish people. Uh, and I, that's something that I was dealing all my life. And I'm interested. So that's how I completed my nine years in prison, nine years in the government with nine years in Jewish agency. So you said when you said no to the KGB, yeah. It was like doing all 613 mitzvot. Yeah, easy. That's how easy it is to be a good Jew. It's much more challenging in daily life. Yeah. So who's the KGB for you today? Oh, thanks God. There is no KGB. <laughs> I mean, you understand what I'm saying? To whom I have to say no today? Or what gives you that same feeling of purpose that you got by simply saying no? No, no. What gave me this feeling, uh, this feeling of purpose is not KGB. It's... Uh, this feeling, uh, when I discovered that there is country that I want to be part of, that there are people all over the world who say, your father is from Odessa, my father is from Odessa, we are one family. And there, uh, there is a history that you definitely want to be part of this history. So when I discovered my identity, it was after 1967, after the Six-Day War in Soviet Union. So that transition from absolutely assimilated uh, Jew, who is Jew only because of anti-Semitism, there is no other reason to call yourself Jew, and becoming the one who is who feels so comfortable in being part of this history and of these people and uh, uh, wishing to come to a Jewish country. Uh, so that was, was giving me this feeling of purpose. And if as a result I had to join the struggle, and if as a result I had to go to prison, and if as a result I had to say no to KGB, it was all the result of this feeling of purpose. So this feeling of purpose of enjoying, uh, of being 
part of this unique historic journey and uh, feeling yourself connected to all parts of Jewish people. That's what gives me this feeling of purpose today. And that's what influences, in many cases, me saying no. And I feel that I am undermining for some immediate in- interest. I'm undermining seriously my connection with the other parts of Jewish people. I just want to stick with, uh, with growing up in the Soviet Union for a little bit before we move on to American Jewry. Yeah. What was it like growing up as a Jew in the Soviet Union? Well, first of all, uh, uh, there was nothing Jewish in my life. No Jewish language, no Jewish holidays. I, such words as Pesach or Hanukkah didn't exist in my life. No custom, no Brit Milah, no Bar Mitzvah, uh, no Hebrew, no book, no, no, no place to go and see Jewish book. So uh, the only really Jewish thing which existed was anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism was in abundance. And it seemed, seemed like very strange prejudice. It is, there is a word, the idea of your parents, Jew, and as a result, there is a lot of restrictions and a lot of conversations of what Jews can and what cannot do, and uh, street anti-Semitism and so on. And uh, because there is nothing positive in this world, only negative things. So it's not surprising that many parents would dream if they could bribe the police and write in the idea of their parents, of their children, instead of Jew, Russian, or Ukrainian, or Armenian, or Georgian. There are 150 nationalities. Doesn't matter what nationality, because the only one where you're restricted is Jewish. Uh, so they'll do it. So it was, it was more, growing as a Jew, it was more like being born with some disease you can do nothing. You have simply to learn how to live with this disease and what kind of the medicine to take. And medicine was clear. The message of the parents was clear. You're a Jew, and that's why you must be number one in physics or mathematics or chess or music. Doesn't matter what, but you must be the best professional. And that is the way of our Jewish survival. The number one dissident. Well, no, that's, that's, uh, they were not teaching me to be number one. <laughs> they were teaching me that you must be the best in your profession. And, uh, then when I tried to be number one chess player in the world, and at some moment I understood I probably will not be, I tried to be the best scientist, and then I found out that I can be the best dissident. So it's, <laughs> I so. fulfilled the dream of my parents. <laughs> <laughs> you made your parents no, but, proud. Uh, so, no, but uh, going back to the question itself, so there was, it was a very strange feeling uh, where the word Jew simply puts you in the category of the pers- handicapped person. And, uh, and, but that, on the other hand, I have to say that my parents, though they didn't give me any Jewish background, they did teach me that you should not be ashamed of it. To the contrary. And, uh, That's a big thing. Yeah, a big thing. And, uh, uh, in fact, we had some sculpture, uh, which probably, which was bought by my aunt on the, on the shuk, on the market, and probably, uh, which was some sculpture. Probably after the war, the soldiers brought a lot of things from Europe, and probably that was one of them, and they sold it. And it was sculpture of David standing on the, uh, head of Goliath. And the father told me the story. So, but that was disconnected from any reality, but simply it was somehow that you should not be ashamed of be, be, uh, having such ancestors as uh, David. That, that was beginning and the end of uh, our Jewishness. After six d- day war, when it uh, changed, when suddenly, not also because of us. Of course, we as all, all those who didn't like Soviet system and we were t- typical 
double think as who knew that all this is lie and so but somehow you you feel uh, we were glad that Israel won but to say that it was something very important in comparison with your studies with your exams with your a struggle for survival and for your business no but when all the goyim around you and the friends and enemies start looking at you and saying how you guys did it huh. and you, say, uh, you don't know whether to be insulted why they say how we did it or to be proud of it and then you understand that you have no choice you have to understand what this connection between you and why all the world connects you to Israel and that's when you start start reading in fact in the underground from the books which were brought by American Jews about our history was and then suddenly you discover there is such a great world and that uh, you if you only make your mind you can be part of it and not part of, of that great history of King David and before and not, and state of Israel and not this his history of Bolshevik revolution which uh, brought such awful things in the world and all this Jews who are coming from Miami and from New York and from London and who say, oh, we are, we are family and we want to help you. And the state, and here you see these young soldiers near the wall, the Western Wall, and you understand they are of your age. And these people of your age are part of this great history that you can be also part of. So that's when the real change uh, happened and then the word Jews start meaning something very real. So you had powerful symbols that carried you through your time in the Soviet Union. Yeah, which uh, which came back, which were not really, which I, you didn't see as a powerful symbols before, but when you return back to your roots, it all comes back in a very powerful way. Yeah. So that's a, a good transition into American Jewry and uh, American Jewish identity. Yeah. You said that you, you had the realization that there was this whole world out there yeah. and you have to choose to be a part of it and choose to be a part of the Jewish people. Yeah. What do you think is going on with American Jews and their choosing to be part of Israel and being part of the Jewish people? Uh, what is happening with American Jewry? The question that I'm asking is, are American Jews going through the same thought process that you did to choose to identify with the state of Israel, with the Jewish religion? Yeah, look, uh, of course, American Jews don't have to do it under such a pressure, in such extreme situation. In fact, American Jews have... I just now came back from Spain, and I went to all those places which were very, very Jewish, and Toledo, Cordova, Sevilla, Granada, uh, and you learn about... The t- or you learn the texts which were written there, and the debates with Jews. And you... All these great synagogues, hmm. which were, which are now churches. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Well, from very few that are like museums, uh, I've been taken back from churches, but mainly they all became churches. And you see there also the texts written, like in Toledo, in one of the synagogues, which was like the most powerful Jew of the community in those days. And there it is written how, how as uh, the birds find from Tehillim uh, about the bird which is finding her home and so that's how freely we feel in Spain and they were all expelled or, or forced to uh, to become non-Jews and uh, and you look uh, learn all this history and you see oh my god how dramatic it must be from such a powerful community so deeply developed vibrant uh, 
Jewishly and uh, and economically and uh, and what a tragic result. No, I I, I don't compare. Uh, America is very different, and uh, I, I I hope uh, that Jewish journey in America will not have a tragic end. But this feeling of having your own independent, full life, and as a result, our own set of interests. And so our strategy is very deep there, of course. And uh, it's interesting, it took time, and I think now we are already 20 years, for American Jewish leaders who definitely want to to be part of Jewish journey, how they realize that Israel is maybe the only tool which they have to keep their people moving on this journey. That, uh, what is birthrights? Birthrights is, in fact, two reformed secular rich Jews discovered that the only way they can keep their children interested in uh, in staying Jewish was to, uh, it happened only when they brought them to Israel. Their reformed secular Jewish education in America didn't help them to give them feeling of pride, of excitement, of interest to continue being Jewish. And they need it. And, uh, and uh, well, there was then, there were big debates in the government, whether it is Zionist or anti-Zionist program and all types of... Whether, uh, whether birthright is an anti-Zionist oh, program? Oh, well, of course, they, I remember I was, was like their lobby in the government. And uh, the idea was what we, Israel, have to give money to rich American Jews to bring their children for free to Israel. They have to give us money. <laughs> what It's opposite to Zionist idea. Yeah, well, they want to have vacations in Israel. It's uh, it's their business. We had, even later, with, uh, in Jewish agency with the Massa program, which is coming for one year, I, when I made a special emphasis on this, I was accused that, well, uh, you're turning the Jewish agency into a tourist ministry. Coming here, living there. Uh, what, uh, what is our interest? Our interest is that they come here and stay here. Not, and coming for 10 days. So there, there was a big debate. In fact, I had to give a bit, lot of credit to Bibi Netanyahu, and, and, uh, who, who was the one who got this importance. And I remember that practical historical meeting in 99 when Charles Bronson, Michael Steinhardt, Bibi Netanyahu, and myself sat in the office of Prime Minister, and Prime Minister signed a letter of support of birthrights, and as a result, it started. But for me, what what's important point, that American Jewry discovered that in order to keep their grandchildren Jewish, they should make sure that their children will be connected to Israel. And uh, so that's an important mo- moment in our relations, because when our relations are built on this, uh, if you want to be one of us, make a lian, that's it. Inevitably, you will lose a lot of American Jews. When you understand that our interest is to keep as many of us with this feeling that we are in one journey. Everybody in their place, but one journey, and the stronger your identity, the more chance that you'll make a liyah. But that's a liyah of free choice, and it's not a liyah forcing or escaping. Uh, that's an important moment. Uh, in the, but there is a lot of tension, and it's the question, how many of us will continue this journey together? It's still a big question, uh, and uh, it's one of big challenges. What's causing the tension between the state of Israel and the American Jewish community? Well, there are half of Jewish people which made a choice, uh, volunteer or their parents made it for them, that we want to live in Jewish democratic state in the Middle East. And there is almost, almost half who said, 
we want to live as a minority in liberal society and enjoy, uh, and enjoy the openness of the society or make sure it's open enough in order to feel ourselves comfortable there. It means there are two different survival strategies. Whether we want it or not, we are so angry that they, they support president who didn't like us and they are angry that we support president whom they don't like. And so, but in fact, all this begins from the fact that we do have ob- objectively different survival strategies to survive as a Jewish democratic state in, in the Middle East. First of all, to have to be very strong, very tough, uh, and organized in accordance with this. And to be very united, one people, one religion, one language, and so on. To succeed in, uh, for Jewish community in America, as a Jewish community, you have to make sure that this society is liberal, is open, is, uh, is not prejudiced. And as a result, when, when they start looking at one another and saying, but we need you to be like this. We need you. <laughs> so in fact, it's like, become like us. What, what, what's the problem? It's simply, it's lack of basic understanding. We, we will not become like them because then we will not survive. And they will not will make a lot different. If not, they will have their priorities. First of all, the problem is that sometimes the very question of survival becomes not important. These are really lost. There are many Jews who are saying, well, you know what? Very nice. I'm very proud that I was, uh, I am Jewish and so on. But whether, well, whether there'll be Jews in a hundred years from now, you know, whether if my grandchildren will be Jewish or not, we'll be love all, everybody. So why does it If it is not important, nothing will happen. We can continue without a problem. If it is important for you that Jewish people will continue their march in history, and I want to be part of this march, well, we have to make sure that we support one another and strengthen one another with our different survival strategies. And that's why, you know, well, with all these crises which we had with the Kotel, for example. And uh, I was, uh, Prime Minister asked me, and I felt it's very important to build this bridge, and I was very happy when we had this agreement. And then when the uh, coalition interests pushed people in another direction, then I heard from my members, well, you won't. We, we have to risk our stability because of the people who are not interested to make Aliyah, who are not interested to study Judaism, who, uh, who, uh, who love Obama, and not uh, dislike Trump. And uh, they were right from Israeli point of view. They were very right in their criticism. But they were saying, but do you want that Israel will continue its historic mission of being home for all the Jews of the world? Uh, that is the only answer which you got. If we are interested, I think in the end, every Israeli wants to feel that Israel is home for all the Jews of the world. So we have to, to think how to make them feel comfortable with this. And of course, they have even more criticism about American Jews who ignore our realities and try, uh, try to judge us by the standards by which no free country in the world is judged. And by this helping to, uh, without wishing, uh, helping to our worst enemies. Yeah. So I, I would say that Israel right now yeah. is the state of all the Jews. Anyone who wants to come here and is a Jew is welcome here. And you can come any color, any tradition, just as long as you identify as a Jew and, you know, the law of return is based on the Nuremberg laws. So even yeah. if you just have a Jewish grandfather, that's enough for you to make Aliyah. Everyone is welcome. You can go as a Reformed Jew and go to the Kotel and Davin right now 
nobody will say anything to you. Now, if you go as a woman putting on tefillin, that's already making a statement and might upset some people. But why specifically the Kotel? And why do the liberal movements need their own section of the Kotel? Why, why is that so important? Everyone's welcome here. Well, uh, <laughs> you're not right. You're not right. I, I, I love Kotel. I love praying the Kotel. I, Kotel is a very powerful symbol. We are the only nation which has such a powerful symbol because at the same time, it's the same number one religious place by far. It's the closest. Number one is the Temple Mount, though. Yeah. No, well, the Temple Mount, uh, 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 it is the closest place to the Temple Mount, which is uh, under our con- full control. Uh, the Temple Mount is, unfortunately... Uh, it's under our control. We just don't yeah, control no, it. Well, we made mistakes in 67, so what? Uh, but, uh, but that is number one uh, religious place at this moment. And that's number one national symbol. It's okay. It's a symbol of our redemption, of our aliyah, of everything. The soldiers are coming See, there, there to give their, the soldiers are coming there not uh, to give oath, not because it is synagogue, but because it is, it has unbelievably powerful connection to all the Jewish struggle. For the freedom. Do so, secular Jews identify with the Kotel? Yeah, of course. Really? Uh, I was absolutely second. In Soviet Union, all our beginning of coming back started from this soldiers near the Kotel and all the story which was behind it. And how we got, of course. <laughs> so uh, it, it became the, uh, I, the first place where we came when I came to, to, straight to the Kotel. And it was not, well, at that moment, I can say that I was already as secular as I was in 1967, but definitely it was not because, uh, or only because of religious things. It's it's like, that is the heart of, of, of our redemption. That is the heart of our return to Zion. Uh, overwhelming majority of Jews who came from the Soviet Union, they were not religious at all. But Kotel was a very powerful symbol. So, if it is a so powerful symbol, so if some people, let's say, feel that they cannot come there with the prayer from their synagogue, they feel, uh, what, uh, they feel that somebody is trying to exclude them from their family. They cannot come, I agree, they cannot come with that non-Orthodox tefillah to the Orthodox part of the, uh, to the place of the Kotel where there is Orthodox. But to have a comfortable place, non-discriminating them, well, of course it is normal. If you think it, you can say, well, but they don't need it. They are coming such a, a small that's number. That's a separate thing. But that's, uh, that's exactly, that's a separate There's thing. Never, I never see anyone there. Every time I go. Uh, well, uh, every day there are some in him, but it doesn't matter. You know, uh, I don't need that place to, to pray, but I do, do want that every community, uh, which maybe will come once in their life, but will feel that they are respected. If you want to think that an in Jewish state, they needed to be 30 years of the struggle, you know, and still not finished in order to have a place where they can keep their sifretara, where they will be shurutim, where they, where they will be the most minimal uh, accommodations and, uh, uh, which are there. And for this, you must have a struggle. It simply cannot be simply technical decisions. And then you need Supreme Court of Israel, which said in 2000 that no, you'll have to have such a place. You cannot, you cannot discriminate. And still 20 years after uh, these places, they begin to build, they stop building, then 
<laughs> still there are no shirutim, and there are no sifrei Torah. By the way, in sifrei Torah you have to uh, to have a special uh, to to bring. So and and if uh, Rav of the Kotel will say that those who, woman who is saying Halel will be arrested, she is arrested. So <laughs> let's not kid ourselves that they. And I again, I go to the shul to which I go is Orthodox shul. To which my children go is Orthodox. And to my grandchildren, the Orthodox. And the, when I come there to pray, uh, and we come very often, I go to the, to the Orthodox place. But as the one who wants that Israel is place where every Jew of the world will feel comfortable, and as I say very often to my opponents, or is you don't recognize them as rabbis, but uh, don't you see that they are communal leaders? You don't recognize the synagogue. Don't you see that that's community center? That was, so make sure that they, with their, as a community leaders, with their community centers, can bring their community and to repeat those prayers which they're giving for the sake of Israel, for the state of Israel. It's, it's important for them as a feeling whether they are included or not. And Israel as a state, not Israel as a chief rabbinate, but, uh, not, but Israel as a community center of all the Jews in the world must have such a place. To, the very fact that, by the way, I was so glad that when Bibi asked me to try to, because I thought that if there is one question which can technically be solved, that is this one, because it's not like Gyur, which is much more, and who is a Jew, concept, which is, of course, much more charged and so on. And, so on. and if conservative Jewry doesn't recognize a conversion of reform Jewry, so how, I hope they, so how can you expect that we so easily will recognize uh, their conversion? So it's much more, here it is technical. It simply, it's uh, egos. It's uh, the fact that some Orthodox parties came to Bibi and said, what you did is recognition, official recognition of reformed woman, and uh, uh, it is against status quo, which was promised by Ben Gurion. It's nonsense. They're, they're <laughs> it's about technical arrangements, how we can live together uh, in one state. That's all. So let's say, theoretically, yeah. there was a middle section at the Kota, yeah. the current yeah. Kotel yeah. Plaza. So now we have men and women. Let's yeah. say we move the mechitza, we put a center section, it's egalitarian. And let's say in a, in an ideal world, everyone's okay with that. Yeah, no. Would we hear from the liberal Jews in America that that's it? We have no more problems with the state of Israel. We feel comfortable now. You've did what we asked for. And on that's on it? this question, yes. No. But, but they will, uh, be happy that their conversions don't have the same status? Of course not. Uh, so it would be other things as well. No, but they are. They, there are things which appeared long before the Kotel. No. Uh, I, look, I don't think that we can uh, solve many of them. We have simply, all the time we have to find a way how we can coexist together, accepting something and not accept. Again, I'll give you an example. The conservative movement doesn't recognize conversion of reform movement. And, uh, they they do or they don't? Huh? They, they do? don't, do they, not. Right, recognize. okay. And uh, uh, there are some uh, who will refuse to marry couple. I will not go into the details. Uh, conservative rabbi will refuse and the reformed will agree. And there are some, and sometimes it uh, becomes very principal. It doesn't stop them from fighting together against anti-Semitism and uh, organizing UJ campaigns for the sake of Israel and participating in birthrights and so on. That's type of things which we have to, uh, look, we need 
one common denominator for the citizens. And, and that's why we insist that the only common denominator it can be uh, orthodox uh, conversion. Then the question is how to make it more friendly and so on. And so. They don't have this problem. And they, it doesn't mean that we can accept their approach or they can ac- accept our approach. It should not stop us from finding the way how we can continue our journey together. So there are questions in which we will have to stay different. But there are questions in which we, we can build bridges. And uh, Kotel is one of the most powerful symbols and most simple technical things where we, where we can build these bridges. So, you know, if you say... But if we will uh, solve the problem of the Kotel, does it mean that they will stop supporting Obama and will start supporting Trump? Of course no, not. I, of course not. And, and I'm not even expecting it. I right. don't expect them to, to, to so change this. What I want to know is, what is really the problem? You know, it's like your tooth hurts you. Is it a cavity? Is it food stuck in there? Is it a root canal? What? Where is the problem? We're talking about the Kotel and conversions and no, political no, the support. Problem, the problem is, that, look, we Jews during our life in diaspora and half of those who continue living in diaspora have very different ways of readjusting themselves how to continue being Jewish and at the same time to feel comfortable among the Goyim. And that's, uh, that's how different strategies were born with secularization, or with uh, non-Orthodox movements and so on. We, uh, Israel, well, Israel was created, some people believed that uh, to gather all the Jews. And that, uh, well, uh, Herzl, who was so powerful in his dream, which became true, believed that simply there will be no, no Jews will stay, and simply, or they will be assimilated. And by the way, Herzl was okay with this. He kind of, or they will make Aliyah. There will be no reason for them to stay Jewish and not making Aliyah. That is how he believed. It's not what's going to happen. It's not what happened until now. Well, maybe in hundred years. Because even Jews still in Russia, they yeah, didn't yeah, make yeah, Aliyah. No, not only. Yeah. No, but in Russia, <laughs> Aliyah that this percentage of Jews that moved from Russia will be from others, but there was a very special condition. But yeah, but uh, we see it practically in every place. I, just now in Gibraltar, it's a small island, sitting a uh, thousand Jews and making money, and I'm very happy and uh, love Israel. So, <laughs> uh, what they're doing there? But, okay. uh, they, are we interested in survival of these people? Yes, we are interested in survival, uh, as a Jews. Do they understand that their way of survival, important is to feel very close to Israel, to be connected to Israel, to feel it's go? Okay, yes. Do they understand that? Well, uh, or you're saying that that's the key? No, they they came to understand it. No, no, there are those who don't understand, who don't care. They will be assimilated. But those who are thinking, uh, they are not ready to go to become Orthodox, but they are thinking all the time how to make sure that our children will stay Jewish. These are those who uh, want to, uh, to continue. Look, uh, it's clear to me, and I think it's clear practical to every community. There are. Only two tools which stop assimilation, well, which are working against assimilation. Two tools. Faith and Zionism. Connection to tradition and uh, connection to Israel. And that's why birthrights became by far the most popular project. What is, what is more popular project of the Jewish world in comparison with birthrights? 50,000, young kids going every year. You don't, because of only reason that 
their parents and their themselves somehow feel that they want to be part of it, but they don't understand why. And this feeling of connecting, inspiring history of interesting people, of interesting societies, so that you can really be proud, not you are ashamed or you are, you are proud of it. It's only through direct connection to Israel. So yeah, I think the, uh, that's why I believe is the only hope. So uh, Herzl was not right saying that Jews, there will be no Jews out of Israel. But I think he is right in some way that Jews who are not connected to Israel, then will be assimilated. Israelis look at the pluralism of American Jews and see assimilation, intermarriage, yeah. and the dwindling of the Jewish community yeah. in America. And liberal American Jews see pluralism as the key to their survival. Yeah, yeah. Is pluralism the road to extinction or the road to survival? Well, but that's exactly one of the main uh, collisions of the In Israel, it is like goes without saying that uh, a reform movement is the way to run away from Jewish people. And by the way, historically, if to think, historically, there is a lot on it. Because it was how I can say Jewish, but be like Goy. Uh, Jew at home, but German or French, whatever, in daily life. And that was the beginning of running away. In today's America... It seems, a statistic and so on, that is like the last station before disappearing. And so uh, to, to say that it's uh, because of reform, okay, let's uh, look at the societies where there is no reform. Is assimilation less there? <laughs> Simply, if you look also in the statistics, there is permanent movement from orthodox to reform, conservative, from conservative to reformed, from reformed to, uh, assimilated. to, 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 to assimilated fully. And there is some percentage of return. So if you take... You're, you're uh, looking at one. Uh, you're there. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're, exactly. You're return. So if you take away this reform, does it mean that they simply will not go to reform and it will stay orthodox? Or do you mean that they will simply go to secular? I think that... First of all, I don't think there was a very deep analysis of this. But from some figures, so my feeling is that's like the last opportunity for you to stop and think, do you want really to be part of Jewish people or do you want to be part of different history? And uh, the fact that there is, so let's put it this way. I don't know in the end, only God knows what will be in the end. But I know that it is our obligation to work with everybody with, on different stages. And if you want to... Uh, born as a reformed, so you must know it even whether, if Israel was disconnecting itself and, uh, from all these reformed Jews saying, as unfortunately some of the ministers were telling me, oh, they, they don't want to make aliyah, they don't want to send ch children to Jewish uh, school, and they don't support our position on Iran because they love Obama. That's why I'm not interested in them. I think we, we, we as a Jewish state don't have right to do it. It's as if, let's say, Likud or Labour is the, and we're saying all those who are Hirut, they're not part of us. They're really people who are problematic. So the sooner they'll disappear, the better. We can't say it. So they're the same. <laughs> we're going to change topics. Yeah. What do you think are the chances of living in peace with the Palestinians? Well, uh, you know, my position is like I was dissident in every government of this position. I believe there is a big chance. I, uh, but I believe that all the so-called peace process is not a peace process because it's all built on the fact that sooner or later we'll find dictator, uh, Arab dictator who will bring us peace. Like Sadat. Like, uh, like, uh, 
Arafat is the best example. We took a terrorist from uh, Tunisia. From Tunisia, we brought him. We said to Palestinians, "He will be your leader. Take it or leave it, but he will be your leader." And we start paying him thirty million dollars on his personal account every month. Every month. He, Every month on his wow. personal account, uh, from the money which we were transferring to Palestinians as a taxes, we were taking uh, $30 million every month, putting mm-hmm. on his personal account in order he would be our dictator. And I, at some moment, I, I was raising it in the ground. I, from '93 uh, was uh, Oslo, I was against it. In '96, I became minister, and I was raising in Bibi's government. And uh, our finance minister, uh, Neymar, was telling me, we can't stop doing it because it's uh, Paris agreements. It's, that's what Europe, that's what America. I think we had to give to Palestinians much more than 30 million. Maybe we had to give them 300 million, but not to, to the terrorists, to, to not help to those. Not bank accounts. Uh, no, yeah, but uh, look, it's public money. So, of course, to, uh, everything, to dismantle refugee camps, to build civil society, to strengthen uh, trade unions, you know, to have joint ventures, not with the Arafat. I, I was Minister of Industry Trade. It was impossible. He was so non-interested in anything which makes his own people more independent. The fact that they'll get more money, good salaries, but it will be not from his hands. He's not interested because... So that's why I was from the very beginning against this peace. I said there is no way. I wrote my first article against Oslo two weeks after it was signed. And I said that the idea that Rabin said that Bli Bagaz Batselem Nefesh, Arafat will fight with Hamas much more successful than we do. It's such a mistake because <laughs> uh, he as a dictator will need us always as the enemy to keep his own people under control. And then, of course, with the disengagement. So I don't think the peace process even started. In fact, by the way, in Trump, I don't know what is its plan, but the fact that he begins from massive economical plan, I would say that it must be also social plan, and not through Arafat, and not through Abu Mazen, but through independent institutions. It has to be done. And the fact that, by the way, that Abu Mazen denies this plan, it's also good because it means that if he will continue his economical efforts, it will not go. Uh, if all this money would go through Abu Mazen, forget it. It's again, it will be for corruption and strengthening this. But if it will be through free, uh, building free economy, I believe there are enough forces inside Palestinians who are interested. Exactly, like I, by the way, Arabs of Israel, I worked a lot with Arabs of Israel. So then, of course, they will be interested to to not to live in constant fear that if they disagree or, or, or Abu Mazen or Hamas, somebody will kill them or their children and so on. So, but, but it's a long process. Building civil society has to be before speaking about independent state. And definitely... Uh, before we start moving our army and giving them any control on any square meter, because every square meter that our money, our army moves away becomes the base for terror. That's why I resigned from Sharon's government when uh, I, I warned that what he's doing with us, it's turning it into the biggest terrorist beachhead in the Middle East. That's what happened. So I am for real peace process. A real peace process begins from helping to Palestinians uh, to build uh, a civil society. If it will fail, there will be no peace anyway. That's why on one hand I am optimist, and on the other hand I am pessimist because nobody's doing it. When we start looking for peace, we are always looking who is the dictator who will help us to control Palestinians. It will not work. Last two questions. Yeah. These are now concluding yeah. questions. Yeah. The question is, if you have a billboard 
say that millions of Jews are going to stop and they're going to read what's there. What message would you put on this billboard? Uh, no, uh, it so happened that in my life, uh, the phrase which was came very powerful to me in prison, and they write about it, was Even if I will walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, because you, Hashem, are with me. But uh, I, I'm afraid many will not understand why it is such an important phrase. It was very special when, when it came. You repeated that to yourself again and again in prison? When I started reading my psalm book, which uh, there was a long story, how I got it a few days before my arrest, how I put it aside, uh, how the, with a note of Vitaly that she has feeling that the time has come to send this book to you. It's a few days after I was arrested, and then I started struggling for it. And I brought then this book to me with the telegram about the death of my father three years later after my arrest. And I decided that I'll start reading it until I understand something. Because if you didn't learn, first of all, there are many words that you don't know, but you don't even understand where is the beginning and the end of the sentence. Because there are no periods, no commas. Uh And all these signs, you don't know what it is. And so I took it as a mathematical, logical task. Here is text of hundreds of thousands of words. And the first phrase which I understood fully was Gam ki alech lo ira Direct message which is sent to me by God, Vital, people of Israel. The other phrase also which was important. The whole world is a narrow bridge and the main thing is not to be afraid. That, that's learned Rabbi it. Nachman. No, and I learned it by chance. So some reformed rabbi yeah. uh, with a guitar came to Moscow and like a few months before my arrest and taught us. It. And, I, uh, and uh, in the prison, I started singing it because it was one of the few phrases there, that I remembered. And there uh, he says, Lo lehit pached. Oh, ah, okay. And the heat pael, which means if you look in the Kutemuan, yeah. I know because I give a lesson every ah. every week in the yeah. Kutemuan. Says lo lehit pached klal, meaning don't cause yourself to become scared. You can be scared. The KGB is coming for you. You should be scared. Yeah. But you yourself shouldn't make yourself ah, scared. That, you know, even without knowing it, that's exactly what I felt. Yeah, but, uh, so there you go, you I got know, the intention. But because I didn't even see it written, I simply remembered how right. she learned it, And I didn't know that it's Rabbi Nachman, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> okay, so the last question. Uh, okay. You've lived an exceptional life, really. Yeah. A very special life. Hard at times. Yeah but a very special life. And I heard in one of your interviews, and you mentioned this earlier here, that you wanted to be the best chess player in the world, didn't work out. Yeah, wanted yeah. to be the best uh, physicist. And then in the end, you became the best yeah. dissident. So my ambition was satisfied, yeah. Yeah, you, you made your parents happy. You yeah. gave them chassidish Yeah. So the question is, everyone wants to live a meaningful life, yeah. but not everyone knows what that means. What does it mean to live a meaningful life? I don't know. Well, uh, by the way, I, I don't know to what extent people really think in these terms uh, how to live a meaningful life. But uh, I can say only that it's such a, as the one who can compare the life without roots, without, the life which is all about how to succeed, uh, how to compete and uh, succeed uh, in spite of all the restrictions and so on. Like, to be like a good sportsman. 
and uh, but without identity. So and the life with the identity, the life when suddenly you have roots, you feel this. There is history. There is people, and, and uh, there is future which is logically connected to the past. And you want to be the chain which is connecting between this unbelievable, interesting past and very challenging future. How much more full and much more interesting, much more enjoyable this life. So you want to enjoy, and that's very enjoyable. That's why whenever I was proposed then to have compromised to go back to uh, the life of a competition without identity, uh, I simply didn't want it. It was not inspiring enough. It was not interesting. So to give advice how to live meaningful life, I cannot. To, to say that from my experience, it is so enjoyable, so interesting, when when you're not simply uh, some small spark which uh, appeared here in the universe for a few dozens of years and will disappear, even if you enjoyed it with good food and so on, but you like you feel that you are really continuing some, something very unique, very great, that you are consuming the wisdom of all these generations and trying to, to pass them to your children. It's such a joy, it's such a fool, it's so interesting every day. Uh, I can recommend everyone to try and you'll see yourself. Being okay. connected to your Jewish roots. Yeah, to, to, to roots. And, and those who think all in terms of tikkun olam, that is the way to bring tikkun olam. Because uh, when you, I didn't have identity, I had no power to move anything. Then fear controlled me. Then only uh, think whether you'll get this promotion, not get promotion. It's, it's very weak and uh, forces in the world. When uh, you're getting your identity, then you are strong enough to, to change the world for the better. Thank you very much, Anton. Okay, thank you. That was Natan Sharansky, one of the most famous Jews alive today. And thank you, my friends, for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure, if you haven't yet listened to the other episodes of Jewish People and Ideas, to go back and listen to the first episodes, the first four episodes. Soon, I'll be interviewing more interesting Jewish thought leaders about contemporary Jewish topics. Make sure that you please leave a review for this podcast. It makes a big difference wherever you're listening to it, whether it's iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving feedback in a review makes a big difference in getting more exposure for this podcast. Of course, share it with your friends. And check out my other podcast, The Hasidic Story Project, where every week there's a new Hasidic story at HasidicStory.com, H-A-S-I-D-I-C Story.com. Or just look up my name, Barack Holman, B-A-R-A-K-H-U-L-L-M-A-N, on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, make sure to check out my two books, Figure It Out When You Get There, and A Shtickle Shalom, both available on Amazon. And I look forward to spending more time with you, my beloved listeners, in the future podcasts. Thank you for listening and for all of your support. Thank you.